You're listening to Death of the Reader, and welcome to a bonus episode here on the podcast. Today, we're going to be sharing a little bit extra on S.S. Van Dyne. First up is Dr. Mike Grost, where we'll be covering a couple of things that we couldn't quite fit into the show, including a particularly interesting question about S.S. Van Dyne's brother, Stanton MacDonald Wright, and his role in what we now know as modern art. After that, about 20 minutes into the episode, we'll be talking spoilers for the Kennel murder case and Benson murder cases. If you're into this sort of extended content, we upload an extended cut of all of our episodes at the end of each book to 2ser.com and our YouTube page, so be sure to check those out if you can't quite get enough of that murder mystery history. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to a bonus episode exclusively on the podcast. Enjoy. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and joining us today is Dr. Mike Gross, a murder mystery enthusiast and author of one of the best online databases for mystery fiction, which has been invaluable. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, if you're not familiar with Mike's work, his personal website contains information on anything and everything detective fiction, and as I said, has been utterly invaluable to us in tracing the connections between authors on our murder mystery world tour. Mm-hmm. Mike, how did you first get involved in chronicling the complexities of mystery fiction? I started reading mystery fiction when I was a little boy in the 1960s, and I bought a lot of used books, and one of them was S.S. Van Dyne's The World's Great Detective Stories, and the 35-page introduction to that is a uh, the first history of mystery fiction, the pioneering history from 1928. And I was fascinated, and I thought, wow, I want to learn more about the history of mystery fiction. And when I grew up, I was inspired to try to write a modern-day history of mystery fiction, directly inspired by uh, today's author, S.S. Van Dyne. So it's, uh, I, I've been I, influenced by certain schools of criticism, especially auteur criticism and film history. Uh, Now, Mike, Van Dyne's fiction focused on these 300-page murder mysteries with complex plots. What stands out to you as the greatest strength of the man's construction of his stories? I think it's it's a very elaborate form of storytelling where he has, as you say, very complex plot, and every detail falls into a logical place there. And the whole thing is like a piece of music where you start out and you develop themes and the story progresses logically, and bit by bit, hundreds and eventually thousands of little pieces and details are all put into a mosaic, sort of like you would find in a symphony or opera. He's a superb storyteller, and he's got an enormous gift for telling detail. I also like his very literate prose. S.S. Van Dyne was a confirmed intellectual. He wrote beautiful advanced prose, and it's a joy to read. I have to ask, Mike, uh, you're giving a lot of praise. Does the man have any flaws? Yes. I would say some of the books are not very good. The casino murder case is very weak. There is snobism in his work. He uh, made his hero be wealthy. And I, most of the people he influenced didn't do that. Uh, they had uh, more uh, middle-class detectives generally in the people he influenced. But my opinion is that S.S. Van Dyne was a major figure in our uh, modern culture, and he influenced a, a lot of uh, aspects of modern culture, and uh, he's underrated right now as a writer. 
So I think it would be, it's more productive now to concentrate on his best books. I would say that his first five novels from the 1920s and then in the 1930s, uh, The Dragon Murder Case and Kidnap Murder Case. Those seven books, I think, are his biggest achievements. Yeah. Now, as you say, many authors take influence from Van Dyne, even though he's kind of been forgotten by the rest of history. As a member of what you call the uh, Van Dyne School of Detective Fiction, authors such as Ellery Queen, Stuart Palmer, Rex Stout, all took inspiration from his works. What are some of the common themes within that school of authors that stand out to you? One thing is that they have a typical plan where there's an amateur detective who's a genius and very good at pure reasoning and thinking, and that amateur detective works in close, happy collaboration with the police. And that's not a plan for a realistic detective novel, but as far as an entertaining, well-constructed mystery story, you could hardly beat it as a plan. That's one of the main things, the patterns that uh, the Van Dyne School of Writers took from him. Another is the fact that the Van Dyne books and the successors tend to have some sort of background set against either intellectuals or people in the entertainment industry considered broadly. Stage, radio, film, uh, the arts, opera, ballet, something like that as a thing. Or, as I say, they're intellectuals. They're scholars. They work in museums. They're art experts. They're collectors. Uh, So you have a, a... a background against the of uh, the intelligentsia told in the form of a literate novel, usually with witty dialogue, uh, upbeat tone, good deal of intellectual sophistication. So you have a sort of entertainment for people who are interested in the intellectual world. Yeah. A, a very positive, joyous look at intellectuals in a big city and uh, the sort of things they talk about and are interested in. Yeah, I remember speaking to uh, Simon Brett, a modern detective fiction author, who said something yes. very similar in that a lot of his work reflects his interest in show business these days. Yes, very much so. And I, probably the ancestor to that, I can't speak for Simon Brett, who is a talented writer, a very prolific, talented writer, but my guess is probably somewhere in his ancestry as a Van Dyne influence, because Van Dyne was the person who uh, put this sort of approach on the map. Hmm. So these two things are really big, the amateur uh, detective uh, police collaboration uh, and the uh, intellectual background and uh, advanced writing. Those are two key things. There's some other things in the Van Dyne School. There tends to be a lot of interest in the time of the murder and the movement of suspects uh, around the murder scene. And these are often linked to uh, interesting architecture and interesting maps of cities and, uh, and city streets. And you can see this in the, the Kennel uh, murder mystery. It takes place in a New York brownstone, uh, which is described as an interesting architectural setting. Uh, there's two floor maps of the two main floors of the brownstone, and there's also a map of the city street outside in the intricate pattern of buildings, gates, vacant lots, and paths which connect everything up. So the whole novel is set against these backgrounds, and you can follow them right on the floor plans and maps. That's also fairly common in Van Dyke school writers. A couple other things, they're not the only people to include impossible crimes in locked rooms, but they sure included a lot of them in their writings and some real doozies. And uh, there's a nice standard locked room mystery in the, kid, in, uh, the kennel murder case we're talking about. 
talking about. Mm. So uh, there's been an interest in sometimes bizarre murder methods, and it takes quite a while for people to figure out in the Kettle murder case how the heck uh, Archer Coe was actually murdered. We will not spoil that here, but it, it's certainly startling and strange, and it's a, it's a sort of surrealism that uh, often pops up in uh, both Van Dyne school writers and some other schools of contemporary mystery fiction, where things are strange, bizarre, odd, weird, startling. And it's sort of a lower S surrealism that runs parallel to the uh, capital S surrealism in the art world. Mm. How do you how do you find from an author's perspective, authors can balance having those complex surrealist puzzles, which can be really difficult to figure out and making the stories accessible for their audience without, you know, leaving them out in the cold, fretting about at what time the train arrived at the station? Uh, that you have to write very clearly and uh, Van Dyne is a very clear writer. I've never been confused by any of his books. And most of the people who were who wrote in the Van Dyne School were very clear professional writers. So that's uh, one thing. And uh, there's lots of the detectives are always trying to highlight and summarize the facts. Uh, you'll see there's a part when everybody's completely baffled uh, toward the beginning of the uh, Kennel murder case and Philo Vance, the detective, gives everybody, the police and the reader, a summary of the strange event so far. And uh, it, it sure helps this reader to uh, get a clear summary, and the Van Dyne writers are doing it. Writing mystery fiction is a difficult thing. Its, it's skill level has often been underestimated by people. Uh, people have often depicted it as inferior to standard realistic fiction, uh, artistically, and that, that's a complex discussion. But it's as a craft level, it's a very, very demanding uh, field. It's not for the faint of heart. You've got to be able to uh, come up with a clever mystery plot, wrap it in entertaining storytelling, and uh, write it in literate prose with sparkling dialogue. And that's a tall order, and it's amazing to me that so many people were able to do this over the past 200 years. Another detail of the Van Dyne School of Murder Mystery Fiction that you mentioned on your website is that a lot of authors contributed verses or passages of their prose towards early social movements, such as in the Kennel Murder case, uh, Philo Vance's treatment of Leung the Cook, and also later on in a book that we're going to be covering coming down the line, Too Many Cooks, uh, the treatment of other minorities. Why is it you think that the authors of detective fiction were so forwards in putting this social commentary into their stories that many people just considered to be about the puzzle. I cover on my website 45 members of the Van Dyne School. It was a huge school and very popular. Uh, many of these people were political liberals who had a strong personal belief in civil rights and the equality of the races. And uh, you certainly see that in Van Dyne. And the, as you say, with Liang the Cook, I, the book goes out of the way in the final interview, which uh, Philo Vance, the detective, conducts with Liang. The, the writer says that uh, Vance addressed Liang as an equal. Uh, he treated him with, it's he mentioned that he treated him respectfully. He, he told Liang that uh, Liang did exactly what he, Philo Vance, would have done under the same circumstances. They allow each other to question each other. Uh, Philo Vance is not usually a man who s- submits to questions, but in Liang's case, he's uh, eager to answer any of his questions. So it's very much a deep, deep commitment to e- equality between people. 
I wish I knew the answer why some people believe in racial equality and other people don't. If I could find a cure for racism, they'd give me the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) And I would just, anyone who could contribute to it deserves it. But as I say, there's of the 45 uh, Van Dyne School writers I cover, 20 made a, uh, took career risks to include positive treatments of all sorts of minorities, racial minorities, sexual minorities, people, religious minorities. They went all out to do this. And as you mentioned, uh, Rex Stout's Too Many Cooks is a classic example. And I strongly suspect it was influenced by the uh, Kennel murder case, as I say on my website. That uh, certainly uh, Rex Stout was strongly influenced by Van Dyne in general, and it wouldn't surprise me that when he uh, wrote Too Many Cooks, he used the kennel murder case as a model. Mm. Just a thought. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, uh, Van Dyne often features entertainers, enthusiasts, and art collectors in his writing, and Fellow Vans is no exception being a critic himself. Uh, how do you think his brother Stanton McDonald Wright's influence is uh, prevalent there? I think that uh, Van Dyne was a art critic himself. You know, he wrote a major book called Modern Painting. Uh, He he had a a life history as an intellectual as well as a mystery writer. And Modern Painting was like a survey of the world of what we now call modern art. And in the climactic chapter, it treats the whole world of modern art as climaxing in Van Dyne's brother Stanton which is perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration. I'm not sure he was as important as Mondrian or Kandinsky, but Stanton McDonald White was a terrific abstract painter with a long and very distinguished career. He didn't die young the way uh, uh, S.S. Van Dyne did. He lived into a ripe old age and just kept painting and painting. Uh, There's a large body of his works available online now, and uh, many of them are astonishingly creative. Uh, He was uh, Stanton's work centered on the use of color. And uh, Van Dyne wrote a second book called The Future of Painting, where he predicted that technology would allow people to do more and more things with color. And even in Van Dyne's area, he talked about uh, light machines that could produce color. Uh, Van Dyne would be absolutely thrilled with modern computer systems and their ability to manipulate color and light in a direct way. In some way, he was uh, a prophet of that. Van Dyne also tried to influence uh, Hollywood and the film industry in making experimental films uh, that uh, were abstract and involved complex color and design. He hoped to get his brother involved as a designer uh, in making such of these films. Hollywood did not bite. And it's too bad. In some ways, you could say that was a waste of Van Dyne's time. But there's certainly been many, many pictorially beautiful films coming out of Hollywood, less experimental perhaps than Van Dyne hoped. But if you look at uh, great pictorialist filmmakers, uh, you, you see impressive visual beauty on screen. John Ford, Joseph H. Lewis, Vincent Minnelli, Jacques Tourneur, Bud uh, Bedecker, and uh, Raul Walsh, and so on, Fritz Lang, many, many uh, visually brilliant filmmakers. 
So Van Dyne tried to prophesy that. He personally failed to uh, launch a Hollywood career doing that, but uh, it, it wasn't for uh, lack of very serious effort and trying. Uh, S.S. Van Dyne was particularly critical of uh, Agatha Christie's works, focusing on her lack of fair play uh, in yes. her mystery construction. We also know that Christie read his works right back. Is this an example of a murder mystery cold war between the two authors? I'm not sure. Uh, Van Dyne's book was published at an era, uh, the, his major writing on Christie came out and, and everybody else came out in 1928 and Christie had only published like four or five books at that time. He is very slighting about her in the book and I, I, I think he made a mistake, but it's also true that he hadn't maybe seen most of Christie's best works that weren't, hadn't been published at that time. I know from Christie's letters that she read Van Dyne, so it's really? uh, and she seems to have admired his work. Van Dyne was very popular in Britain. Most British uh, critics viewed him highly, in my impression at that time, as as one of the best American writers. Yeah, it might just be so, a question of uh, experience at the time and how much uh, how much work in the field they'd both completed. So Agatha Christie hadn't written as many novels as Van Dyne, um, kind of looking yes. down on that. And she uh, she still needed a bit more time to, to boil, so to speak. Yes, she did. She was just starting her greatest period in uh, 1928 when Van Dyne wrote his History of Mystery Fiction. Uh, she launched the big series of 14 Poirot novels that were great. She wrote her Miss Marple short stories and many other classic short stories in that period. Tommy and Tuppence, uh, the, uh, the uh, Harley Quinn tales and so on. And these are all very, very brilliant works. And it's possible if Van Dyne uh, had gone. Now, he did get a chance in, towards the end of his life to write reviews of a lot of uh, mystery fiction that uh, authors that weren't covered in his book in 1928. And the historian Mike Toomey has unearthed a lot of these things. Some of them are now available online. And Van Dyne got a chance to uh, favorably praise a lot of people who regard as now as major writers, like he was a great admirer of John Dixon Carr, all Stanley Gardner, and quite a few other writers who he'd hardly known about or hardly begun writing at the time uh, when uh, he, he put out uh, The World's Great Detective Stories in 28. So this gives a little more balance to Van Dyne's work. He was a broad, very broad enthusiast over a very large range of his contemporaries. He usually was not snide or negative, although he was with Christie, but uh, he's usually enthusiastic and admiring. Which is a very different perspective from perhaps what some people portray him as these days, which is very interesting, and I guess it unfortunate to some extent. Van Dyne in person, I'm sure, could be difficult. He had problems with substance abuse. He, uh, he had womanizing issues. Uh, he was uh, he could be acerbic to people, uh, and I, I, I'm not certainly not saying he was a saint. Uh, he did put, I think, the best of himself in his writing, and we have to just to be accepting of that and say, okay, uh, we can be grateful that he accomplished so much as a writer. And uh, I, I'm not here to sit in judgment on him as a person. I, I agree. He's a, uh, everything I've read about it makes it sound like he, he could have been a difficult person. Thank you very much, Dr. Mike Gross, for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you about Van Dyne, his work, and his influences. Thank you. It's been great to be invited. I appreciate it. Thanks for chatting. <laughs> 
And uh, once again, a thank you to Dr. Mike Gross for his online database of murder mystery knowledge. We'll chuck a link up on the podcast and you should absolutely check it out. It is fascinating reading and very well put together. Thank you very much. Appreciate the compliment. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is a bonus episode on the Kennel Murder Case by S.S. Van Dyne. We have just come out of reading the Benson Murder Case by S.S. Van Dyne before looking at this movie, and we wanted to sit down and in a completely spoilers-on-the-table zone talk about the differences between the two. Yeah, it's particularly interesting comparing... uh the film versus the book and the book versus the later book, because this is the sixth book in the series. So yeah. uh, even though they're all planned at the same time, there should be a, a fundamental difference in the way that they're, they're laid out and the way that, that Vance is portrayed. And we should maybe see some character development. I don't think so, but I would really, I thought we saw some character. Development. You think so? Well, here's the thing is I don't thought we, I don't think we see a monumental character difference. But we do see a different side of him because we've lost that perspective. Yes. We aren't seeing this story through the lens of S.S. Van Dyne, the character, <laughs> and thus we don't just get the constant hype man praise that yes. S.S. Van Dyne lumps upon him in this the book. This is true. There is, there are some very significant changes, and I, I really do want to read the book myself to see how these sorts of changes translate over from film to book and backwards. Um, especially in the lighthearted nature of the film, mm. or I, I should say the aspects that were lighthearted. Um, Doctor, uh, all the scenes that involve the Doctor and uh, the dogs even being a part of the film in the first place, having these cuddly little creatures running around. Um, there were some very strange uh, differences in terms of how the story is presented. Yeah, I think one of the things that stands out most to me is, as we've mentioned, the humanity of Vance yeah. himself. I think what stands out above everything else is the fact that Vance actually tells everyone where his head's at the whole way through the story. Yeah. In the Benson murder case, he's like, oh, don't worry, guys, I know I've, who it is. I, I know out, who really. it is. I know I'm who it is. And he unveils it at the end. Whereas in this one, he's bringing everyone along for the ride. He's more mm. of a shepherd, as you put it in the main episode. Yeah. He's very much looking out for everyone. Um, and he even gets stuck at the end. He doesn't 100% know what he's doing. He's a much more, dare I say, imperfect character. <gasps> Um, Shocking. Also, something else that's that's particularly fun is that Philo Vance, of course, this is using an opportunity to tell us how great he is, but he cares for a dog. He has a dog that he looks after. If that's not humanizing, I don't know what is. Yes, Captain McTavish, best Captain character. McTavish. Best character. Except for the Doctor. Second best character. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about Doremus. I think one of the other interesting things about Doremus was that in the Benson murder case, he was described as being bland, uninteresting, and doesn't really want to be there. And that yes. was why Vance liked him, because yes. he was there and he got out and he wasn't in anyone's way. Mm-hmm. And that's still true in the Kennel murder case, but he has a personality to yeah. why he doesn't want to be there. Well, he he comes and goes very quickly. And yeah. yes, it's, it's not just because he's an unimportant piece of this mystery. It's because he has things to do, like sleep and eat food, um, which yeah. is very charming. And I think speaking of characters in the police force that have those kind of differences, I also thought that Heath got a lot more interesting attention. You know, he was basically a side character and everything was Markham in the Benson murder case, whereas in this story, Heath was basically there in every scene. 
he was the main one going back and forth and Markham was just kind of sitting in the background. Yeah, there wasn't as much of that dynamic, which was interesting, uh, because S.S. Van Dyne, through the narration, uh, tells us at length about the relationship between Markham and Vance and how you know they're best friends, but they also talk like they hate each other. There wasn't really much of that in this movie, and no. I, wonder, I wonder why that is. If I had to guess, it's probably that a lot of the dialogue that was originally going to be Markham's when these books were planned was then moved over to Heath, or Possible. that that's what the film adaptation did. I, yeah, well, that's the interesting puzzle, seeing what the film adaptation has been done, what the director's done with the script is always particularly fascinating to me. Yeah, and there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, maybe we should go read the entire book before we start talking about it, but I think that it's fun to share where our head's at before yeah. we get the opportunity to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the other things that I really liked comparing these two novels in particular was that we have another false confession. <laughs> and we make fun of it too. Yes. There is an explicit throwback to the original Benson murder case uh, where uh, Hilda comes in and says, oh, I did it. I did the whole thing. And then Vance sits down and says, was this your lipstick? She's like, oh, I guess it might have been or something. And he says, no, that's not going to work with me. That's not going to work. I've seen this a thousand times. Throw it out. <laughs> it's excellent. I, I thought that it was really fun the way that it dealt with its own history. I thought that the movie was a lot more personable, a lot more enjoyable yes. than the tone of the book. I still absolutely love the Benson murder case, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, but if I was going to recommend something to someone, I would recommend the Kennel murder case over the Benson. It's just more palatable. Absolutely. Uh, Vance as a character is much more palatable. He doesn't feel like the center of the attention of the room every single scene um, because we're not following him. We don't have that perspective of, as, of, of Van Dyne following him from scene to scene. We can have these cutaways and these extra scenes and all that sort of thing, which I also really appreciate now that I think about it. I really appreciate that we had scenes just showing, you know, Bisman in his office. Oh, it's 4.15. I've got to go because it's 4.15 and there's a train that I have to catch. Did I mention it's 4.15? You know, having these these cutaways where the audience gets a bit more information than what they would otherwise get from strictly following the detective's perspective. I really enjoy that sort of thing in films. And it's something that that we can do really effectively um, through this visual medium. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always one of the challenges with film adaptations of murder mystery is how much do you choose to show? Yeah. Because basically anything on set could be a clue and you have to have a lot more set dressing in a movie than you do a book. And they do. Uh, one of the biggest high points, one of the greatest high points of the film is how it has so much going on in the background. There are so many scenes with with no dialogue where we we, fo- we, we follow Cook Lang, you know, from one room to the next and Vance is trying out his little door trick behind him. There's, you know, the way that narration is also blended with the showing of the crime scene and, and how the culprit has moved from, from place to place and carried out the murders. Um, the filmography, like the, the, the cinematic language of the film is so beautifully put together. Um, I, I kind of want to watch the Benson murder case film and see how that holds up. Maybe we should do a big watch along and live stream it all and be go through a lot of them and then get taken down by Warner Brothers <laughs> for copyright infringement. Who knows? I mean, that's probably how that would go. But hey, if you're interested <laughs> in seeing that, maybe uh, give us a buzz on one of our social media uh, on Instagram or uh, or Facebook or Twitter. All at Flex and Herds. At Flex and Herds. Either way, this has been a little bonus episode. Not a terrible lot, I think. If you want to catch anything more about the Kennel Murder case, you can check out the main yeah. episode. This was just a taste. Just a little taste. A little taste of that, that sweet French cuisine. I've really enjoyed our time with S.S. Van Dyne. Yeah. I will miss him as we carry his rules on into the dark 
depths of murder mystery. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? When you've written 20, 28 or so rules for murder mystery, it's kind of hard to forget. Exactly. Mm. Although it seems that the world has done just that to him. It's very sad. It is very sad. That's what we're here for, to carry the torch. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Death of the Reader. We'll see you on the show.